0: I learned very early on that if I wanted to grow, I had to remove myself from the parts of the business that were time-consuming. A chief visionary officer is the person who, in your company, probably you, who is being strategic about your next steps, strategic about your growth, strategic about thinking about what to do next, actually running the business than being the
1: person, an employee in the business. You're listening to Product Powerhouse, a podcast to inspire and empower you while you build a powerful product-based business that fuels your passion and feeds your family. I'm your host, Erin Alexander. I run an e-commerce web design agency that helps shop owners build, grow, and scale. This podcast is all about actionable strategies specifically for your product-based business. So friend, grab a nice coffee and let's chat because DIYing your business doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Product Powerhouse Podcast. Today, I have a really fun treat. I got to be one of the early readers of a book that's coming out really soon, which is super cool for me because I love reading. I've read a ton this year. It was really cool to get to read the book early then I got to have a conversation with the author who is Tracy Matthews. I have talked about Tracy on the podcast before, and I have been on her podcast. Tracy is an incredible woman. She is the co-creator of Flourish and Thrive Academy, which is the community where I am a coach or website and design coach. I got to meet Tracy in 2019 in New York in her amazing penthouse apartment. her apartment had a penthouse like party room. Incredible. Tracy is incredibly knowledgeable about business. She has been running her own business forever. And she's just really, really smart. And I loved getting to talk to her about her book, which is called The Desired Brand Effect. This conversation is a lot about jewelry. But in the conversation, I asked Tracy, does this apply to other types of businesses? Because I know that not all of you listening have a jewelry business, and I don't have a jewelry business. I wanted to let you know ahead of time that yes, the content of this episode is good for everyone. I had even taken away some really great nuggets. I have like two pages of highlighted (laughs) content from the episode, that's just fantastic information that applies to any type of business. So don't feel overwhelmed or like this doesn't apply to you if you are not a jewelry-based business or jewelry designer. This is still really great information for anyone who has a product-based business. And Tracy said that maybe in the future she'll have like another version where it's less specific to jewelry-based business, which I think would be really cool. So let me read you Tracy's formal bio because it's pretty impressive, and then we'll jump right into this conversation with Tracy. Tracy Matthews is a jewelry designer, entrepreneur, the host of the top-rated Thrive by Design podcast, and the author of The Desired Brand Effect, Stand Out in a Saturated Jewelry Market with a Timeless Brand. Over the past 25 years, she's founded four companies, including two jewelry companies, Flourish and Thrive Academy, and Creatives Rule the World. She helps creators and makers of all types align their business with their life goals to become better leaders, create financial security and freedom, and live more fulfilled and fun lives. Every week, she inspires over 150,000 people to launch, grow, and scale successful multiple six and seven figure jewelry, product, and creative businesses every week through her podcast, blog, social media platforms, coaching, and programs. For more information, visit FlourishThriveAcademy.com or CreativesRuleTheWorld.com. Hi, Tracy. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. How are you today? Erin, I'm so excited to be here. And it's
0: so fun to watch you like launch into the podcasting world. You've done such a oh, great
1: Oh, thank job. you. <laughs> I have loved being on your podcast. I am so excited to talk to you today about your new book that's coming out. And it's actually launching in a couple of days. So, it's so exciting. Tell us about you. Tell us, like, your background. Thanks for asking. I've been a
0: creative entrepreneur, let's just say, for the last 25 years. I started my creative entrepreneurship back in the 90s as a jewelry designer. So I took a class in college found out I had this talent that I loved and I was super passionate about it. It was kind of the beginning of the independent designer scene. I was one of, I guess, the forerunners in that scene in in a way. And I had been working in boutiques and specialty stores at the time. And I kept seeing these designers coming in, selling their jewelry. And I was like, I want to do that too. So being naive and everything, I started a business and I was just like, I'm going to figure this out as we go. Now, 25 years later, there's a lot of ups and downs. And part of that process of being an entrepreneur was that my first business did awesome. Like I got into 350 stores around the world, I had a ton of celebrity clients. I was being commissioned by like Revlon to d- design pieces for people like Halle Berry. Like so many awesome things happened, and then 2008 happened, and my whole business was wiped out in within the manner of almost a couple of weeks, and that was really hard. The reason why I'm sharing that is because that. Experience kind of led me down this path of like, how can I figure out how to run a business that's sustainable, that supports what matters to me most, meaning my vision of success, and also helps me achieve my goals a lot faster. I think the other thing too was that when I was in that time of really struggling with my business and grasping at straws to try to figure out what to do, I hired my first consultant right around that time. I thought to myself, oh my gosh why didn't you do this sooner? This was like the dumbest thing to like wait this long to hire someone because now I have this objective sounding board who could tell me like everything that I need to do to fix my business or to not fix it and move on and do something else. And so through that process, I decided to close that first business down. And the reason being is that he would ask me all these questions about like what I love to do and what's important to you and all these things. And there was nothing aligned with what I wanted to do and what I love to do with that business model. I was like, what did I do? I just built a job for myself. This is terrible. I hate it. And like, this is supposed to be the thing that I love to do. And I'm spending all this time doing parts of the business that I hate it. I knew that I couldn't get away from jewelry. And after I filed for bankruptcy and closed that business down and all the things, that's like literally the shortest version of the story ever. There's more detail in the book. But after I shut it down, I launched a new company and i used the desire brand effect which i wasn't calling it that at that time to grow a very successful business in a very short period of time meanwhile i had my first company for about 11 years and within 18 months i had already surpassed my monthly take home pay by a significant amount maybe i was making like 30,000 a month like on the really good months and it was awesome and i was like why didn't i do this sooner and so that was sort of the initial birth of the desire brand effect methodology. I wasn't calling it as I mentioned it at that time, but it was a system that I developed to identify problems in my business. Then I started mentoring other designers. We started creating programs through the filter of that system. Our makers started getting a ton of success. And you know that because you coach in one of our programs, which is awesome. I wanted to create something where if someone's saying like, oh, I'm struggling to get consistent sales, what do I do? Okay. So look here. Or I am working really hard, but my business isn't growing. I can't seem to break through the glass ceiling that I've created or I've hit a growth plateau. Okay, what do I do? Or shoot, like my business is kind of going backwards. Like I, my sales are declining. How do I fix that? Like, what do I do? So it became this filter to kind of solve problems in business. We've been using it for the last nine years and it's been awesome.
1: That's incredible. I love that you share the failure part I mean, that with lo- like so much love because so many people are having those moments or they've had them and they feel ashamed and they think that there's no coming back from it. And you are living proof that you can, like you say, hit rock bottom and still build a sustainable business, multiple sustainable businesses that create massive income for yourself and like create this movement. And I think that there's so much value in sharing that for the people who are in those moments and afraid that this means that that it's never going to work for them. So thank you for putting that out there and sharing like that. I know it's probably wasn't easy the first few times you shared it.
0: You know, the first time I actually shared it publicly, I started crying on camera and we used it as a sales video for our (laughs) foundation program. And I remember this girl, she ended up becoming a student a couple of years later, which is like, You really need to like pull it together on camera and love you. If you're listening, like I just, I remember this as a lesson, like it was so close to me at that point that it was really hard to talk about. I got to a place where it became more neutral and the reason why I share it so much and talk about it all the time. And I have haters and people are like, oh, oh, why should I take business advice from someone who has a business that failed? Well, I will tell you that most entrepreneurs fail big time in some way, shape or form, at least the really successful ones it's what you do with that failure that matters. It's like, what lessons did you learn? How have you evolved from it? Hopefully you don't have a failure as big as mine where you have to file for bankruptcy and all those things. But honestly, a lot of it was out of my hands. Like, I couldn't control the fact that the economy crashed. I couldn't control the fact that about five of my key accounts filed for their own bankruptcies and didn't pay huge bills that left me with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. I couldn't control that the commodities market skyrocketed (laughs) at that time. So I was shipping orders that had been placed like three to six months earlier. I couldn't change the price. And basically I had to either cancel them if I was underwater on the order, or I was just ending flat. So it was a really challenging time. And it's interesting because now we're in interesting times too. It's not the same, but it's also interesting for people because I feel like there's this frenetic energy that is distracting people. And so if you aren't focused on what matters most, you can easily go off in a tangent. And so with that being said, this failure was really hard for me to go through. I'm finally almost 10 or 11 years out of the official filing for the bankruptcy. And I'm hoping that things start going back to normal with my life from the repercussions of that soon. But I learned so much that process on like what to do and what not to do. And it also was the, basically the spark for a business that I've had for nine years that has served thousands and thousands and thousands of jewelry makers and other product businesses to help them grow successful brands.
1: Yeah, that's so cool. So your book is The Desired Brand Effect and it's coming out in a few days. It's coming out in November. Can you like tell us what is the desired brand effect?
0: <laughs> yeah, so the desired brand effect as I mentioned earlier is the methodology that I created to solve problems in my business. Typically when we're building a business there are many things that we have to do and we're always vying our attention for priorities right and so if you don't know how to prioritize what matters based on what's happening in your business it becomes really really overwhelming you might be need to focus your attention on developing your brand messaging because you're not attracting the right kind of customers but you're over here trying to like create goals and systems or something when that might not be the best use of your time at that Given period. There's three core pillars to the desire brand effect. The first pillar is creating desire. And this is all about attracting your audience, getting your messaging out there, and being like a magnet for the right people to come into your brand vortex. That includes your brand assets. So it's like anything that you design or make, all your packaging, your website. You're like a huge proponent in the creating desire piece with your building websites and stuff, your pricing, your product, like all those things. Then it's like your audience, which is basically the defined version of who you want your dream client to be. And then the actual version of who that dream client is. And then all the people who are following you and in your bigger network, including people who've bought from you before and who have not bought from you before. And then there's the brand voice piece in that, which is all about how you're speaking to the world. So this might include your brand story, the language that you use, the way you show up on social, like all those things are kind of like your brand voice and your brand story. The second piece of this is all about sharing desire. And sharing desire is what most people think of as sales and marketing. It is a lot bigger than that. So this, obviously, the core pillar of that is really the sales and marketing aspect and being able to convert people on that stage to a customer. The second part of this, which I think is almost equally as important, is the experience that you give people. So this includes like customer service. We call it exceptional customer experiences. Because what you do before the sale is just as important as what happens after the sale and throughout that process. Um, I use a quote in the book from Tara Silverberg. She's a, a store owner. She has a jewelry store and a gallery in Brooklyn, New York called The Clay Pot. They were a big account of mine for a long time. She did an interview series with me when we first started Flourish and Thrive. And she said, the best way that I know to understand if someone is going to be a good partner for my store, because I'm looking for people that I can work with for many, many years, is when something breaks or goes wrong. Because how they act after that point is how I know if I want to continue working with them. I see this all the time inside our community. Like A customer reaches out, they want a refund or a piece breaks, they want something replaced for free, or like someone loses a stone... Like the way you handle that situation, and it's not always giving someone like a replacement for free, is everything. And that's really important. I think that's a really valuable piece of advice for anyone listening. Because the more that you can surprise and delight people and give them a great experience, the more that they'll remember your brand, the more times they will buy from you a second time, the more that they will refer you to your friends. And we're in a world where sharing products and things that you love has become so valuable. Because look at what's happening with Facebook right now. It used to be easy for a brand of all types to go on there and start running ads and make money relatively quickly just by running ads if you have the targeting right and you're getting your message in front of the right people. Well, now they've changed all the attribution rules. You can't really track people in the same way that you could before, which is great from a privacy perspective for people, but it's really hard for people selling Jewelry. It's actually hard for consumers too, because we aren't finding as many brands that we love. The more referrals that you get from other people, and I'm calling it referrals for lack of a better word, the more clout and credibility that you have, and the easier it is to continue selling over and over again. And then the third piece of sharing desire is all about revenue generating activities or the actions that you take to make money. And the reason why I put that in that color is because a lot of people are like, oh, I need sales or my business is flat and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, what, what are you spending your time on? And they're like, oh, oh, like posting on social media. Well, that can sort of be considered a revenue generating activity, but that's not an active sales strategy. And so if you need sales, you need money coming into your business, you need to be doing the active things that are actively bringing money in. And we, I go in depth into all these things in the book. This is just like really a high level overview. And then the third piece is scaling desire. And this is all about how you're optimizing your business for growth. So that includes uh, proper planning. So it might be strategic business planning and setting financial targets and goals for yourself. It would also include systems and automations, because I think a lot of people who are creative and not necessarily inclined to systematic thinking do a lot of things manually, and it wastes a ton of time. So there's a lot of ways you can optimize your business from the inside from an automation perspective, but also documenting your your way of doing something so that the next thing can happen, which is getting support. Support can look like in the beginning, if you're like a one-man show, just being in a supportive community or having a peer group to talk to. It could also mean eventually getting a mentor or consultant like I did or a coach or working in a community or getting help from a community like Flourish and Thrive Academy or some of these other maker communities that are out there. Or it might also look like hiring people on your team. And the biggest mistake that I see people do a lot is that they really need help. They get to this place where they're working really hard. They can't handle it anymore. And they're kind of at that precipice. Like, And to me, the marker, depending on the kind of person it is or the price point of the product, because high-end jewelry isn't necessarily as... It might be a much higher gauge. But I typically see this happening when people start to hit the 6 like $100,000 to $150,000 marker in their revenue for people selling like handmade price points because they're at this point where they're shipping a lot of product, but they don't really have a lot of extra money left over to hire an assistant or a team yet. They're kind of in that weird stage. And they're like, I just want someone to help me with my social media. So they'll bring, or I want a VA to help do like upload stuff on my website or whatever it might be. But they don't have anything documented. They expect the person they hire to just be able to figure it out and walk in. And then they're frustrated because they're like, they're asking me so many questions, all this stuff. It's just easier to do it myself. So they end up firing the person and they're right back in the same spot. Well, you can't just expect someone to be your brain. <laughs> like you have to train them on how you want them to do things. Documenting that process, even well before you think you need it, is going to be really powerful in helping you get support as your business grows. Because even if you're just hiring someone like for five hours a week, you need to be able to train them effectively for them to do their job in the right way.
1: I have so many questions or things I want to bring up, but I love how you broke it into three pillars. And one of my questions was in these three pillars, you know, creating desire, sharing desire, scaling desire, are they like one after the other? Do you do one first? Are you doing them all at the same time? How does that work? Like, Are they distinct or do they kind of work together?
0: Well, they all work together, of course, because... When they're working in in tandem, that's when things start to really kind of explode for your business. I think most people probably need to focus on one area at a time as you're doing it. Like we have a bunch of programs at Laying the Foundation that you know about because you're a coach in our momentum program. For instance, our Laying the Foundation program, it really focuses primarily on creating desire and sharing desire because the people taking that program are trying to get consistent sales in their business, and that's the most important thing. We also teach them how to create like a plan, create systems. But we're not going to go super into like technical automation and stuff like that for someone who's just trying to make their first like five thousand dollars a month. Like it doesn't make sense because it's way too over their head. As people start to move up and grow their business, I would say like the more important aspects is continually creating that desire, but. Focusing more on like optimizing your business for flow, because the more you can do that, it removes you from your business so that you don't have to be the doer of all things. But the way that we look at it is sort of like when you go to school, when you're in kindergarten, you learn like a basic set of skills. And then in third grade, you learn something a little bit different. And then by sixth grade, you're kind of more advanced, right? By the time you're ready for high school, you know, you have a whole different skill set. Same thing when you go to high school, you know, you're a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, there's like four levels, same thing with college. So you're always layering on the next step. And it's like, when you go to college, you might've been like decided you wanted to be, let's say like an art major or something like that in college, you don't start doing like advanced welding projects in your metalsmith class, like on the first level. So you're going to start with the basic thing. You need to learn how to click the torch on, use a striker to light the torch. You need to learn how to get the solder to flow. You need to probably start working on a small piece with cheap materials before you start working in gold or silver or something like that. It's like levels of the same thing. And an example that I use, and I can't remember if I use this specific example in the book, but I use it a lot in our trainings and stuff like that is a designer that we support. Her name is Alex Camacho. She came to us for help. And when she came to us, she was Uh, On track to do about $65,000 that year. And we started working with her in in August. She had a goal. Like, her goal was to just do $100,000. Like, that's what I really want to do. $100,000. Like, well, we can easily get you there. You have a great product. You have like all the things are in place. You have a big audience already. Let's just work on getting you more sales and figuring out some ways that you can optimize your business for growth. So, within four months, she hit her goal. She ended the year with $110,000 in sales. So, she was pumped. She was super excited. All the things. That next year, she closed the year out at about 150. And I'm sharing the numbers because I think that's important to see like how the progression of how someone grows. But throughout that second year, so with the first six months, she was just focusing on like hitting her sales goal. The next year, she was focusing on like documenting the things in her business that she needed to do and optimizing her business so that she could produce more jewelry and reach more people. During that time, she was still building her audience. She was still improving all the messaging, getting all the things on the back end going. So in the next year, which was year two to two and a half, the most crazy thing happened because growth like this doesn't happen for a lot of people these days. So it was interesting to watch. She had worked with us, she listened to me. She was always on those calls. She was a go-getter. Like she implements, started getting some support. She'd hired like a virtual assistant. She listened to me about training them. The person was crushing it. They could take on more Work. Her husband started helping her with a little bit of production. She showed him how to do like clean the castings and stuff like that so she could focus on continuing to grow her audience. So she did that and then she started running ads because most people want to run ads way before they're ready. They don't have a sales funnel in place and it's a waste of money and it gets thrown in the trash, right? Her business exploded. She more than doubled that year. She ended the year with $330,000 in revenue. The reason why was because she kept k- creating that connection with her audience. Her audience kept growing. By the time she was ready to run ads, her messaging and everything was so on point that the people who are her perfect people just like got it. So when they saw the ad, they're like, "Oh, this is cool stuff." Like, this is the coolest jewelry. Like, I have to buy it. It just really resonated with them because everything was on point. And that's how things can really scale quickly. But as you see, it wasn't like she started at $60,000 and then her business grew to 330 in in six months. It took time because she's methodical about it. And that's the issue. And it's hard for certain people. I would tell you, it's really hard for me to be, be methodical. I'm not a methodical thinker. I'm highly creative. We were talking about this before. I'm a quick start. So I want to build a plane while it's flying, but that's not really the best model. I operate in that model because that's how I work and how I can make it work. I have to slow myself down a lot to be able to explain things to my team, to get on the same page and to get things flowing. The more I've done that, the easier it's been to grow. And when our systems have fallen apart, because I'm not going to lie, like this is always a constant process that you have to revisit. When COVID hit last year, it was an interesting time because like So many things had shifted all at once. And I had to let go of a bunch of people, not because of COVID necessarily, but because I'd hired some people that weren't the right fit. And because we were short staff, we've been short staffed literally for a year and a half now, we were like, just like scrapping things together. And it it became challenging. Like we had to like, basically like rework all of our systems to make sure that when something like that happens again, we're in a better place, like, and things don't fall apart it's an ongoing process. And I think that that's something that people have to remember. It's not a one and done thing. Your business is going to have ebbs and flows. And hopefully you're you're one of those people who always grows every single year. But that's not realistic for most brands. People have ups and downs and you're going to see years where you totally crush it and years where you might have to take a step back and reevaluate some of the things that you're doing.
1: I think that that's something that a lot of business owners don't understand or they don't understand at the beginning is that you're always like layering on something new that you've learned. And with every layer, with every trial, with every error comes like a new lesson that you've learned or new skills that you've developed, or you've realigned your, you know, your plan with what is actually selling things like that. I think a lot of times they just want it to be like, Oh, I did that once and I'm finished and I don't have to do it again, but you're always improving everything you do basically. Exactly. Yeah. So in your book, you talk about the maker mindset versus stepping into the role of the chief visionary officer. And I have heard you talk about the chief visionary officer at your live event in New York a couple of years ago, and I hung on to that. So I'd love to have, if you could give us like an overview of what's the difference between a maker and a chief visionary officer in your business.
0: Well, I call it maker mindset, and this is no disrespect for anyone who considers himself a maker. I was originally a maker too. I totally get it. And I understand your passion for wanting to be the doer of all things because you feel so attached to it, or you feel like that's the best way for you to grow your business. I learned very early on that if I wanted to grow, I had to remove myself from the parts of the business that were time consuming. And quite frankly, when I started my business in the early days, I worked in wholesale. And so when you, when you sell in wholesale you typically have a sample line and then someone orders off the sample line. And then you have to make the same thing over and over again, which is really boring. And that's probably why there's so many people out there who want to do one of a kind work all the time, because they're like, I'm bored. I want to launch onto new things. And I totally get it. I feel you. I started getting really big orders. My hands started hurting. It was challenging to be able to make all the things. Plus, I knew that I wanted to keep getting orders. So basically in order to fulfill the orders, I had to stop selling in order to make the orders. So it was like, oh, great. I get some orders. And then my sale. Then the next month I went not have sales and then orders. And then next month I wouldn't have sales because I wasn't focused enough on the sales piece. And then I wrote a book by Michael Gerber called E-Myth Revisited. I was like, oh, this is the reason why. Most people start a business. Because they're a tech what he calls a technician or a maker, they're good at something, and they basically just create a job for themselves. They're sitting there working in the business all the time, being the doer of all things, that's fine up until a certain point. And some people might, you know actually have a, a successful business working operating out of that mindset forever. But what I found is until I could remove myself from the like, I mean say the drudgery parts so or like the parts of the business, number one that I didn't like, or number two, the parts of the business that were actually really time consuming that I could hire out someone else for a much lower salary that the market would bear. I would never actually reach the financial goals or the bigger goals that I wanted to hit. He really talks about it more in the format of, you know, being a, a CEO or something like that. And we we had this course at the time called Multiply Your Profits. It was one, our second course that we developed, but we've retired it since now. We just rolled. Most of the trainings into our momentum program, which is about optimizing your business for scale. I had to decide like, I'm like a CEO is like a really boring word. And so I'm like, you know what? I don't identify as a CEO, even though I'm technically the CEO of my company. I identify as a visionary. I think of visionaries as more like creative thinkers, problem solvers, people who are going to go out in the world and do great things, like all that stuff. A Chief visionary officer is the person who in your company, probably you, who is being strategic about your next steps, strategic about your growth, strategic about thinking about what to do next, actually running the business than being the person, an employee in the business? Person operating on a maker mindset is really someone who thinks that they have to do everything in order for their business to be successful. And I will tell you that even if you're not in a place where you can hire people right now, if you can get out of that mindset and start thinking more big picture, Planning for growth and starting to think in a more strategic way and stepping into your role as the visionary of your business, things will change really quickly. You might find that your sales grow pretty fast because you're being like a little bit more growth oriented and growth minded. And you might have an opportunity to bring someone in to help you with social media or to help you with your marketing or to pack and ship the orders or even to make your jewelry or your products. I know that making part is something that people are really have a hard time stopping doing, but I swear I've converted a lot of makers <laughs> to change their mind. When they see what's possible, and it doesn't mean you get out of design completely. It just means that you get to design the first round. And then like once you perfect that first design, then someone else could do the re- reproduction or whatever.
1: I know I think a lot of makers hang on to that like I'm the artist. Yeah. Which you talk about in the book too, because they got into it because they love making what they make and then it evolves into a business or maybe they started out as a business, but they didn't plan for that kind of growth. I have that same struggle. I'm like, these are steps that only I can do, but couldn't I teach someone how to do them? Yes.
0: <laughs> you can even teach someone your design process, Erin.
1: Yeah. We actually do have a developer and a, a design assistant, but now I need to get someone who can understand the strategy that I develop between for each website. Yeah, there's a big shift between... Being the person that's making all the time and being the person who's focused on growth of the company. I love the way you have broken it down and how you call it your chief visionary officer. I'm like, she made this up and it's fantastic. It fits her perfectly.
0: <laughs> well, I have to tell you something friends outside of this industry are now using that. I'm not saying I coined it because it's really like a term that's used in the book Rocket Fuel by Mark C. Winters. They talk about visionaries and integrators, which if you can ever find that combination, it's Awesome. It just has to be the right combination. I think a lot of people try to hire an integrator, and the person is not really an integrator. They're just someone that they want to do all the business side of it. But if it's not the right fit, then it, it will be worse than not having someone.
1: <laughs> I just recently actually took the quiz, like whether you're a visionary or an integrator, and I got, you are neither.
0: <laughs> oh, really? You're a visionary.
1: <laughs> I am happy to work behind the scenes, but also like, Given the opportunity, I think I could focus on growth, but I never have given myself that opportunity. But it was just kind of funny to be like, You are neither of these things. (laughs) I know you work with jewelry companies because, and that's your background, and you are very good at that niche. But do you think that the desired brand effect could apply to other types of businesses, like other product based businesses? I honestly think it could apply to all
0: businesses. In fact, I'm probably going to be doing a version for product companies and also regular brands. And the reason being is that the methodology is timeless. It's something that works for everyone. We have a lot of people who are not jewelry designers in our community at Flourish and Thrive. We've gone back and forth. I don't want to get into the the space of like the Etsy seller handmade business mentality space. So, and I'm not saying that to sound rude or anything like that. It's just more like I really believe in people building a separate brand outside of someone's third-party platform. And while Etsy and Amazon can be great strategies for multiple streams of revenue, like I feel like we're aligned. You build websites on Shopify. We love Shopify. It's our favorite platform. I really believe in the power of sending all your traffic to your own branded website and other things. So we've gone back and forth with what to do with it. In the book, originally, we started writing for all product businesses it was becoming really hard for me to convey the message. So I decided to just focus it on jewelry designers. And the reason being is that there's two things that I think are really unique to the jewelry industry that it's very different for general products or handmade businesses and stuff like that. And that is pricing because jewelry pricing is much less straightforward than pricing for other physical products. Because there's so many things that you have to think about. Like fine jewelry is very different than custom jewelry. Then it's very different than... Handmade jewelry, is very different than like costume jewelry because costume jewelry can get huge margins. You can mark it up 10 times and sell it all day, every day, because it's usually pretty cheap to produce. Fine jewelry, you don't get as big of, of margins because like a diamond might have like a 10 maximum 30% markup on it, max for a big diamond. It's a different model. And then if you're wholesaling that diamond, you know, it's like a totally different strategy. So there's a lot of things to think about when you're pricing those things. Uh, The second is product development. So developing collections for a jewelry artist are a little bit different than developing collections for a regular product artist because in the jewelry space, because jewelry is small, you need typically per collection, you need probably about 12 to 24 or sometimes even 36 or 50 pieces of collection. It really depends on the scale of your piece and how you're selling it for it to make sense. Because you don't want someone to go on your website and there to be like three pieces. They're like, oh, here's my new collection. Here's three pieces. It just doesn't make sense. And they also have to be done through a specific filter so that you have things that are the lower end of your price point range and the higher end of your price point range. Some of those things translate to other products, but it's a little bit of a different strategy. It was becoming really hard to not be convoluted in that. And so once we get this book launched, I record the Audible version, which will come out in December. I'm going to rewrite the book, the sections of the book for general products and run a few case studies through that so that we have a book for
1: product and handmade makers as well. That's really cool. I'm not a product-based business. I'm a service-based business, but I have found a lot of things to be applicable. There's a lot that you talk about as far as like building a brand story and creating desire for your service or your business. That applies to everyone. Maybe this will be like a for dummies series. The desire brand
0: effect for service based businesses, the desire brand effect for coaches. I was kidding. <laughs> yeah.
1: I love it. But the other thing that I think is unique to jewelry that you actually touch upon in the book is or like the reason someone is buying jewelry. Yes. I think that that's something that a lot of the people, like a lot of my clients struggle with because like people need soap. So you can make soap, they have to have soap, but there's different reasons why people would buy jewelry. And you talk about those in the book and it's really different for jewelers. And it's, it goes back to that, like creating desire and like, why are they buying this in the first place? And that is different for jewelry companies.
0: It's very, very true. And thanks for bringing that up. I didn't forget about it, but it wasn't the first thing in my mind. Because this is really important. People don't need jewelry. So candles, you know, you might have a smelly house, you might need a candle, you know, whatever. Those are more consumable products. Jewelry takes a lot more consideration. And so there has to be a reason why someone's buying this. And I I learned, I think the story did not make it in the book, but I was on QVC back in 2006 and seven. And I had to go through a sales training and I'd already been in business for like eight or nine years at that point. And my business was close to doing like a million dollars that year in sales. And I was selling lower price point products. So my it wasn't with the fine jewelry that I designed now. It was mostly things that retailed for $50 to $300. So I, I'm on PVC doing the show and I had to go through the sales training. And they're like, why do you think people are going to buy your jewelry? I was like, oh, because it's lightweight, because it's handmade, because of the semi-precious stones. I literally had no clue. And I'm so embarrassed to admit that because I seriously done a good job selling my product for a long time. But I think back then there was a lot less competition in the industry than there is now. There's so many choices for jewelry. I mean, Etsy has made the jewelry industry explode because anyone who like was wire wrapping some beads before just making stuff for families and friends now has a business. It was interesting because I kept like throwing things out there and other people in the room were and they're like, "No, it's because it makes them feel sexy or it makes them feel confident." And that's just the start of it. All those things start to tear up into purpose and meaning, personal meaning or what the pieces mean to them, the impact of a human being is making in the world because there's so many secondary aspects that kind of go along with that. And it's so much deeper than just the way a piece of jewelry looks. Sure. They have to like the way it looks first, but there's a lot of consideration, especially when you're, when it's things that aren't like fast fashion.
1: I was just talking about this with my friend about like the three reasons people do things <laughs> is for health, wealth, or sex. <laughs> it's like, how does that tie in? <laughs> okay, Tracy, this has been really awesome, but I want to talk about one more thing before we jump off. And that is chapter 13. The last chapter of the book is all about tying it together and you talk so much about mindset and I wanted to ask you like how does mindset really tie into a business because it's not necessarily a business skill but it is a skill that all business owners need. This story is not in the book and I wish
0: it was in the book now. When I was starting out doing trade shows, I am super competitive so I was like I would always be comparisonitis. I'd be like, "Oh my god, that person's booth so busy. Why is my booth not so busy?" and like their jewelry is so ugly. Like, how are, why are people buying that and whatever? And I used to buy these handbags from a friend of mine. She made these Tylie Malibu, I think it was called. I don't even know if they're still around or stuff like that, but I knew them from the shows. This maker, this designer made these really beautiful, like soft suede handbags that were hand painted and bedazzled and jeweled and stuff. This is probably like 2003 or four. Super hot LA brand. People would come into her booth and she's like, no, I'm not selling to you. She's just starting out too. Because someone would say something or like, I only want to buy four bags instead of the 10 minimum. She's like, no. She was so confident. She literally did not give a crap that she was turning away customers. She was just so confident. Then there was this other designer who had a line outside her booth. Her jewelry was so ugly, but she had it on a ton of celebrities. It was all this like big, like puffy heart. Like, you know, that New York heart, like the Keith Kuntz famous thing that says I heart New York, or whatever the, like the puffy hearts it was like these massive puffy heart necklaces. I was like, who would actually wear that? It's like, and it was expensive too. lying outside the booth, but she had confidence was just like going for it. She wasn't really a designer. She knew how to enroll people and get them in there. She was confident. And that's when I started realizing the energy that you put out is like what people attract. So if you are you know, worried about people buying your stuff, and you don't have that confidence, and you don't have that belief in yourself, or you're comparing yourself to other people. It's going to like really impact your ability to succeed. And at any given time, like running a business is hard. Like anyone who's run a business for a long time, you're going to have cash flow issues. There might be days you're not able to pay yourself or make payroll. You know, you're waiting for a check. The check bounced. Ba- this is what used to happen to us. Maybe you're waiting for a check. The check bounces. Hopefully, you're just running credit cards because that's a little bit safer. But, but you know, it's like all these things happen, and there's like all these ups and downs, and just like the day to day of running a business. If you can't stay, if you don't stay positive, and you can't continually work on your mindset and deal with the stories that are might be holding you back unintentionally that you don't even know about, like the confirmation bias that you have because of how you were raised as as a child. That You don't even know about, or like if you have any unhealed trauma or these other things, these all creep up into your business and it can become disastrous if you don't deal with it. And so you always have to be dealing with it. This morning, I was having like a little bit of a panic attack when the morning that we recorded this episode, a couple of big things didn't come through. I was expecting like a couple of deals to kind of land and they all fell through. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm always working on healing this trauma that I have from 2008 and nine because. These last two years have been very PTSD-ish for me because the energy that's going on around in the world, it's a very different situation, is reminiscent of what was happening back then for me. And so I've had to be doing a ton of mindset work over these last two years. So this morning, I was like, I'm going to spend as much time as I need to listen to hypnotherapy on Prime Mind. I'm going to do like abundance meditations. I'm going to change my mindset I was supposed to work out with my trainer. She texted me like, here's the link. I was like, oh no, I forgot. I was supposed to work out with you. So I'm like, do you still have time? I'm late. And like, I'm going to be late. And she like did it. She talked me through it. Cause she's great. Like at coaching me when I'm off the ledge, she's like, keep a positive vibe. We're working it. Next thing I get a call, like deal went through next thing. Like I opened up my bank account. There's like 10,000 more dollars in there than I expected to be in there. You know, it's like <laughs> all these things started happening because I shifted my energy. And it's like, it's not magic it's about reducing the level of anxiety that you have or the beliefs about yourself that aren't serving you and changing that vibration to be something that is going to be productive and help you continually grow. It might seem weird that someone like me is sharing that story because a lot of people don't really share real stories. They're like, oh, you just need to do this and I'm perfect. And you know, I never have these problems. But quite frankly, the, I teach what I need to learn all the time. And I think that the best teachers often do that. Primarily because people know that they've been through it and they, they can actually like speak from a place of truth instead of a place of just like speculation or like, oh, I'm teaching this because that's what everyone else does. But I will tell you based on those stories that I just told you, okay, well, I, I will give the brand Tylie Malibu, like her product was awesome. I used to love it. I bought it. Really beautiful, talented designer, but she didn't give a crap. <laughs> Even from the day that she opened her business, she's just like, I want the right people. People are jerks. They're out. And I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't really care about the money. That was such a great place to be for someone. Like I was like, I was so impressed. But in this other girl who was just going for it with the ugly jewelry, the jewelry that I thought was ugly, who was selling a ton of jewelry. And I was just like, the thing about those people is like, they didn't care. They were confident. They believed in themselves. And that was the reason why their business was successful.
1: Yeah. I can totally relate. Today I was sending out proposals. I have a whole list of proposals and I was like, it costs this much. And I'm like, I feel like I should tell them why it costs this much, because there's a lot of work involved and I need to justify the price. But I was like, no, it costs this much. Don't say anything else (laughs) because I needed to be confident because it is a lot of work. I can justify it, but they don't need to know, you know, like unless they asked, why is it this much? Then I would tell them, but it's all about that confidence and like what you're putting out there. And I love your stories of like getting extra money when you sit down and meditate about it. That's fantastic.
0: I think it's really important to practice being detached from the outcome. And this is something that I learned as yoga, teaching yoga for many, many years when I used to teach yoga, is that the more you can put what you desire out there and be detached from the outcome, the easier it will be to actually stay in flow. The problem is, is that a lot of times we get really grippy to the outcome. Like you send out these proposals, like if you just sent them out and you're like, oh, I don't care if they say yes or no, I'm just doing my best work living my best life as a graphic designer, you're going to find probably like most of them come back with a yes or all of them. I think the challenging part is like, if you're second guessing yourself and you're like, Oh, I hope they come back. Like, cause you're like grippy or needy then start getting that grippy, needy energy back. And they're like, I don't know. They're hagglers and they go to price or whatever. Yes. A
1: hundred percent. When you say yes to like people that don't feel right. And then the whole project goes on like that. Yeah. Say no to the wrong people. <laughs>
0: I recently did this. I still design jewelry. I don't design as much as I used to even like two years ago, just because everything that happened during COVID and I moved to Arizona, I needed to get some more grounding I finally feel grounded again. So we're going to start scaling that business up again. I took on a client this year because I thought it would be easy. There was that slight tinge when I was like signing the contract. I was like, they're probably going to haggle me on price. (laughs) Like literally... So many emails back and forth about like, why does it cost so much? And should we do this? I'm not sure if we can do the thing. And then taking like a month to respond to one email. And it's like, because I do custom designs now, like when a custom project drags out that long, it's so hard. Like you need to compact it into a six-week period just so you can do your best work. Otherwise, things fall through the cracks and it's not a good experience for anyone. So I still learn my lesson. I'm like, I'll just do it, like it'll be fine.
1: I feel like you've shared so much with us. I can't wait for everyone else to read the book. So yeah. let's tell them where they can buy the book and any bonuses. I know you're offering bonuses with the book. So I'm excited to have you tell them about that. Thanks for asking, Erin. You can buy the
0: book on amazon.com or you can head on over to the desiredbrandeffect.com and all the information is there. So we have some amazing bonuses when you buy the book. Plus we're developing a whole resources section. So like in the back of the book, There is a whole list of resources that you can just you can get for free just by buying the book. So the bonuses include if you're on the wait list, if you're get the order the pre-order the book on the Kindle version before the book comes out, you're gonna get some special pre order pricing. We're doing a deeply discounted Kindle version of the book. You're also gonna get a video training of the desired brand effect in action. So this is where I walk you through the model. So you have an understanding like, oh, this is what she's talking about when she's talking about these different aspects in the book. I'm going to be doing a special training for y'all called Your Vision of Success. And this is all about aligning what matters most to you with your business. This is the most powerful tool that you can have because I see people over and over again creating jobs for themselves. And what I want you to do is to create a business that supports your lifestyle first, financially, you know, intrinsically, all the things so that you have financial security and freedom and you feel like excited to show up to your business every day. And then we have this special launch team bonus that which is going to be a, the inside a seven figure jewelry company. And even if you have no desire to build a seven figure brand of a product or a jewelry company at all. I think what you'll see in this training is a lot of insights on what it actually takes to set your business up so that it can work without you. And I think all of us would like to work less and make more and make a bigger impact at the end of the day. So Those are the bonuses when you buy the book. And so you can head on over to desiredbrandeffect.com and everything that you need is listed right there.
1: Yes, we do have the link in the show notes. You still have a few days to sign up for the wait list to get the pre-order bonus. So do that right away. And then where else can they follow you online, Tracy? You can find
0: us on Instagram at flourish underscore thrive. You can also find me personally at Tracy Matthews NY on Instagram. And then you can join us over at Flourish and Thrive Academy, academy flourishthriveacademy.com.
1: And we have all those links also, because I know it's way easier to click a link than remember what someone said, but we have all those for you in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing everything about your book. Congratulations on launching your first book. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. It's been so awesome to be here. Thank you for listening to the Product Powerhouse Podcast. It means so much to me that you take the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. It's my favorite thing to create, and I am so grateful that you've taken the time to listen. If you enjoyed this podcast or you have listened to other episodes and enjoyed those, it would mean the world to me if you could take a minute out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps me get the show out to more people just like you who are out there trying to grow their own product-based business.